Well, this morning, I will invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. And as you'll soon hear learn, we have essentially just had 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 sung to us by our kids. It says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This morning, as we start to look at this text in detail together, um, you should know that the essential elements of this passage are very, very basic to us. Uh, now, they do follow a particular format, and uh, as we just start to uh, deconstruct a little bit what these verses have to say for us and then put them together in a way that we can all grasp and understand, um, I need to share just one thing with you as we, as we get into that, okay? Um, this is called a chiastic structure, and that's important for a particular reason. And so you have a, it, it is a letter X to us, but not in Greek. It's a key in Greek, and that's where the word chiastic comes from. And it comes from the shape of the X, and it has to do with this type of inverted parallelism. And, and if you're wondering why I'm telling you all this, it'll make sense in just a second. It helps us to understand our text for this morning. So what you have is it follows a particular structure. Go on to that next one there, Rob, if you would. And what it does is it, it comes from a particular direction to the center, and then it comes from the center back out. And that's where the structure comes from. So it follows a pattern like this. Go ahead to that next one. It follows a pattern of A, B, C, and then C with a variation, B with a variation, and A with it. So it goes A, B, C, C, B, A. Now, the important part about this is that our text does this this morning. But here's what we have to focus on. This reality is that, go to that next one, is that C is the main idea. Do you see how it's right in the center? So the main idea of our text is going to be found right in the middle, and the outside supports the main idea, which is found in the middle. Does this make sense? So in order to arrive at what the text is actually telling us, we're going to follow exactly this pattern in our text this morning. He's going to say something, and then another thing, and then another thing, and then it's essentially going to be repeated, but in reverse. <coughs> Does that make sense? So, at, with that understanding, that this is, by the way, this is not something that, you know, we just came up with that's kind of cute, that helps us. It, this is a way of communicating in the Greek world. So, Paul, being an excellent communicator, uh, knew how to communicate. And this was a tool that was used by the Greeks to communicate, Okay. And so he's doing this. So this is our layout for the text this morning. He has A, B, C, and then C, B, A. And the words that we're going to use to help us are a resolve, that is what we're resolved to do, what we've decided to do, or what we're going to do, and then a reason for that resolve, and then the reality that is for the reason that is for the resolve. And the reason, the reality, rather, is right in the middle. That's the reality. That's the main point. What is the reality that feeds all of this? Well, we know up front that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's the reality that feeds all of this. So what he does is he has a, an imperative at the beginning, he has an imperative at the end, and he sandwiches it all in between, but the main point is found right in the middle. Okay? Let's look at what our text has for us this morning. Resolve number one. Flee sexual immorality. Is that what he says? Flee sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Now our imperative there, what we're told to do is flee, run. It literally means to run. Um, Paul doesn't use this word a whole lot. And uh, we might ask a question right here. We've defined, haven't we, what sexual immorality means? I think we're in week number six of, of talking about this idea. 
So we should have a good grasp of what he's talking about. Something. What is he telling us to do? Run away from it. Run away. Now he uses this word. I told you he doesn't use it very much. But he does use it two times with the Corinthians. And then he uses it also with Timothy. What do we know about Timothy? Timothy was young. And he tells him specifically in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. (coughs) Flee one thing and run toward something else. Now, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever, you you need to go somewhere in your mind where you have recently run away from something, okay? That helps us get, a, get into a better mindset to grasp what is being said. When's the last, thing you, last time you ran away from something? You fled. Now, two different things have happened. You have run, no idea where you're going. You're just getting out of danger. That's one, one way to flee, wouldn't you say? You're just getting out of there. But there's a completely different way to flee. That is, I'm fleeing one thing to another decided direction, Right? You get the difference between the two? You can just randomly run away from danger. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going somewhere other than right here. That's aimless running. But what Paul has in mind is a running away to something else. It's not an aimless running away. It's a running away to his other imperative, which is going to be at the very bottom, okay, at the very end of the text. And so we'll get to that. But I believe, I firmly believe, that Paul has a particular thing in mind when he's used hand and fled. And he got out of the house. He fled. He ran away. This particular imagery is meant to be in our minds when we're talking about, yes, sexual immorality, because that's the context, isn't it? But we are to be fleeing from sin. Is this how you picture sin in your own life? It's something that, yeah, I mean, you don't want to get involved in. You want to not get involved in sin. You want to not sin. But it's not my mentality that I'm literally running away from it. We need to be running away from sin. Fleeing from sin. Isn't this a completely different lifestyle? You have one lifestyle that just wants to not accidentally step on sin. Whoops. You have a completely different lifestyle that is constantly fleeing from sin. This is what Paul calls the entire Corinthian church to do as it pertains to sexual immorality. Don't just avoid it. Run away from it. Is this easy to do? Is it easy to flee, in particular, sexual sins? Just run away from it. I don't know why it's so hard. Just run away. Flee. Why run away? Well, let's go to the reason. The sexually, every other sin, excuse me, let me pick up right where it starts. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So what we're told to do is run away. Why? Every other sin, apart from sexual immorality, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. A question that we need to ask that seems to be present in the text is, is sexual sin quantitatively different or qualitatively different? I'll say that in a different way. Is the difference the degree of sinfulness or in the type of sinfulness? Is sexual sin more sinful than other sin or is sexual sin a different category than other sin? Is it worse or is it categorically different? Those are the que- that's the question, okay? Is sexual sin worse or is it different? Because he's saying every other sin, so he's saying there's something different about sexual sin. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person actually sins against his own body. That's interesting. I want to quote uh, Stephen Wellam right here on the idea of the degrees of sin. What are, 
are there, de- for, I guess you need to ask the question, are there degrees of sin? Is it like, that's sin, yes, but let's talk about sin. Are there some sins that are worse than other sins? Are there degrees of sinfulness? Are there categories of sinfulness, or is it just all sin, sin? Although all sin before God is serious and deserving of eternal punishment, Scripture distinguishes between degrees of sin. In this sense, not all sin is equal in terms of its effects, consequences, and degree of punishment on the person, on the others, or on the church, or even on society. And I agree with that. I believe that that's what Scripture teaches. I believe for a few reasons. I'll just give you a couple James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And that is what we're saying that, yes, all sin is sin and worthy of punishment, wrath of God. No, no one's questioning that. That's true. Little sin, big sin, it's all the same as far as that's concerned, right? But what about John 19.11, for example? Jesus answered him, would you have no authority over me at all? unless it had been given to you from above, therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Greater sin. Are there degrees of sinfulness? Like one thing I do is sinful, but another thing I do could actually be more sinful? Interesting. John, uh, 1 John five sixteen, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, There is sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. So there are different types of sin? The answer is yes, there are different types of sin. All sin, whether big or small, doesn't matter, are deserving of the wrath of God. That is true. But let's get inside that reality for a moment. Not all sin is the same. And it's actually exactly what Romans 1 teaches us. You remember, it's a slippery slope that God lets them go down, 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 down into depravity. So it gets worse. It's not all the same. The punishment and effects of sin are felt differently. For example, if you lust after a person in your own mind, is that sin? Oh, certainly. Does Jesus even say that's adultery? Well, certainly, yes, he does. But is it worse in a sense to actually commit physical adultery with a person? Are the effects of that greater, deeper, and more expansive? Well, the answer is obviously yes. Do they both deserve punishment and are worthy of the wrath of God? Yes. But are the effects felt differently? Yes. Just another quote here. Again, Stephen Wellam. Specific sins that are a denial of God's created order are viewed as more serious in terms of their effects on the person, families, and the entire society. This is what Paul highlights in Romans 1, 18 through 32. It's what I just said. Although all sin before God is sin and worthy of death, certain sins, such as destruction of human life, sexual activity outside of God's creation of heterosexual marriage, even disobedience to parents, which Paul lists there in Romans 1, are highlighted as greater because all of them are a denial of God's created order. Greater in that sense, that God's created order of how things are to be arranged in his creation are flipped upside down. Remember he said, even their women, even their women burn with lust for, for their own, right? So there's a greater reality to what's being said there. Now, the other question is, that's about degrees of sin. Are there different categories of sin? If there are degrees of sinfulness, are there also categories of sinfulness or categories of sin? And I think we need to say yes on this as well because the ideas are linked together. Romans 5.14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of that which was to come. Okay, so there was a type of sin that Adam committed that others did not commit and vice versa. So that's interesting. What was the sin? Well, in that particular context, it's about willful, uh, willful sin and ignorance but sinfulness. So this is why it's said, with more revelation comes greater accountability. With more revelation from God, there is greater accountability. 
All sin is sin and worthy of punishment from God, but where there is greater revelation from God himself, there is more accountability for what you knew. This is the parable of the talents, right, for example. But this is also when Jesus says it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Why? Because you had greater revelation. The Messiah is standing right here and you're still not accepting him. So it will be more tolerable for them than for you. Seems to be that there is greater sense of punishment or accountability. Why? Because the revelation they had was greater. So we take all that together. What does all that mean? Another question we need to ask is, is sexual sin the only sin that is against the body? Because Paul just said, all other sins are outside the body. But this type of sin is sin against the body. Well, you might ask, what about like, for example, drunkenness? Okay, what about gluttony? That seems to be sin against this. Wait, is gluttony sinful, by the way? Oh, okay. Americans forget that sometimes. Gluttony is sin. It's an overindulgence of food, right? Overindulgence, generally speaking, specifically food. What is drunkenness? An overindulgence of alcohol, okay? So that is sinful. So how is sexual sin in particular different? Well, because it's committed against the body, but aren't these other things? This is where we have to go to categorical difference. Sexual sin is unlike some other sins that we might consider as against the body in that it's not doing harm to the body, but instead, in the case of sexual immorality, a person uses their body for a purpose other than that for which it was created. You're using your body for something other than what it was created for. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? To take your body and to do something with your body, something other than what it was created for, is sin against the body itself. What did he just say in 1 Corinthians 6.13, second half of that verse? The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What is the body not designed for? Sexual immorality. It's not created for that. It wasn't designed for that. That's not its function. That's not its purpose. So when you take your body and you do something with it that it wasn't designed for, it's wrong. It's worse. You're taking God's created order. You're taking what God created and you're taking what God created your body to do and you're doing something different with it. Is your body designed to eat? Yes, you're just eating too much. Is your body designed to drink things? Yes. Was your body designed to do these things? It's just that you're, you're, you're overindulging and what you should do with these other things. Now, when you do uh, commit sexual immorality, it's different categorically because you can't reverse that. Because what he just said, that there is a merging of people when this happens. The two shall become one flesh. So should you take the members of Christ and join them to a prostitute? Never. Why? This, that's what the whole text today is answering. Why? Why don't do that? Why be different than the culture around me that says that sexual immorality is okay? There's a main point. Because your, your body was created, right? It was designed, it was created. God knit you together in your mother's womb. Isn't that true? And here you are today by God's grace. And he created you, he formed you, he fashioned you to live on this planet. To what end? What are you made for? What are you made to do? And specifically, not only you as your whole self, but your body. What is your body meant to do? What is your body designed for? For something or for nothing or just my body is my own and so I'll do with it what I want. This has vast implications for our culture. Are we all understanding what's being said here? to take what God created, fashioned, and then for it to be born, and then to take that thing and decide, God messed up when he made me. And now I'm going to go through medical procedures to undo what God messed up. Wrong. 
Your body wasn't made for that. It was created, and your creator doesn't make mistakes. You were created just as he intended. You know, we all have these things about us, don't we, that we just wish weren't part of our life. Why did God make me that way? God does not make mistakes. You were created just as he intended. I think this about myself. I have some dark cloud areas in my own heart, right? Things that plague us in a sense. But if we understood this properly, we would understand that God has designed you as you are. Now, it doesn't mean, well, he designed me with a proclivity towards sexual immorality. And God designed me that way. Did he make a mistake? Oh, now you're getting into to bad business there, aren't we? Because obviously, God designed you, yes. He made you, yes. But he made you for a purpose. He made you for something. And what did he make you for? To give him glory through yourself. Now, there are ways we can give God glory with our mind, we can wa- ways we can give God glory with our heart and our affections, but there's another way we can give God glory with our body. Our body. Yes, your body matters. Right? Your body matters. So what is God's design for the human, the human being that he has created? Specifically as it relates to sexual immorality, the Lord's design is that a, is a husband for his wife alone and a wife for her husband alone. The reason a person should take care to flee from sexual immorality is because of obedience and holiness. Yes, that's true. But also, Paul says, think of the seriousness and the consequences of sexual sin. Prostitution, other forms of sexual immorality are sin against one's own body and sin against the Lord. So, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Or, do you not know why you should be fleeing? What's the big idea? What's, what's, or what's the big deal? I don't understand why this is so heavy. It's maybe because we're missing the reality. So let's look at it. What is the reality? He says in verse 19, Or do you not know? Oh, or do you not know? No, I know you know. Let me tell you again. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Do you not know that? Do you not know that your body has value? Do you not know that your body has value? Do you not know that your body was created to do something? Do you not know, believer, that the Spirit of God lives in you? And you are then taking that body where God has dwelt and doing something with it that he says, no, that's not even what I created your body to do. Your body, what has body meant throughout this whole section? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body. Your body? It seems like and just go with me here for a second. Doesn't it seem like in the Christian world that we over-spiritualize things sometimes and we think then that like the body is meaningless. Like this is, oh, just a frail reality that one day all things will be made new and it's all, it's all about spiritual realities. The physical reality is nothing. It's all about spiritual realities. But that's just not accurate. It does have to do with physical realities as well. Your body matters, and what you do with your body matters, and if it didn't matter what you did with your body, then this whole section of Scripture is irrelevant. Body has meant body, your body, your physical body, and the body of an individual. Specifically, why did this whole conversation even start? Because there was a guy in the church who was doing something with his body that he should not have been doing with his body. And then he goes all the way down here and he says, or do you not know why you shouldn't be doing this? It's because God lives in you. God has made his dwelling place in your body. So what you do with your body then matters very much. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, which we already covered, but just be reminded of what it said. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Are you hearing that? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What does holiness mean? Is there sin in holiness? Is there anything unclean in holiness? God's temple, the dwelling place of God, is that a good place, bad place? Is there sin present where God is? God doesn't stand in the midst of sinfulness, so he has a holy presence. He is holy. And where is that place? It's in you and it's in me. Is the dwelling place of God holy? It is, but is it? That's that weird balance, isn't it? You're saying that God dwells in me and where God dwells, it is holy, but yet how could I still have sin in me if God dwells in me? That's strange. How does it all work together? It's a process of becoming more holy as you were created to be, right? And that process is sanctification, becoming more holy, becoming the reality of what you are. You are the temple of God and you're becoming the temple of God as it is made more holy because the holy place of God is meant to be holy after all, right? For the ancient people, the dwelling place of the gods, of any god, not that there are more than one, but for them, the gods, the dwelling place of the god was a holy place and it was separated from all other places and dedicated and devoted to the god of that house. Have any of you been in Nashville to the Parthenon? Yes? Okay, Linda Dean has and Mason and Morgan. Okay, okay. All right. All right. This, this is the Temple of Athena, and it's a, a wonderful recreation of, of a, a true temple that is in existence. Uh, and uh, if you haven't been, I'm, I'm kind of surprised more people haven't been, but you should go and see what this is like. You want to get an idea, a feel for all the temples that were in the city of Corinth? Go and visit in Nashville the reconstruction of a temple that's to scale. And you'll start to understand the immensity of what's being talked about here. But what you'll notice when you go into that room or into that building is that there is a grand room that used to be filled with water and a reflection pool. And you'll see the giant statue of Athena. And that was to be a clean, holy place. Why? Because that is where the God lived. And you don't want clutter around where the gods live, right? They won't be happy with you. This was a common idea. Now, what's being said about the temple of God is that the temple of God is not made by human hands. Isn't that exactly what Paul said? Acts, or, uh, who said this? Stephen said it, excuse me. In Acts 7, 47 through 50, it was Solomon that built a house for him, yet the, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, and he's quoting Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? How are you going to put God in a building? Where does God live? Where is the temple of God, the dwelling place of God? Where is that? Well, before Christ and before the sending of the Holy Spirit, God directed the Israelite people to construct a building called the temple, would you know it? And in this temple, there was a separate room called the Holy of Holies, the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies. There was a, a temple, which was already holy, and then the holy place, which was more holy, and then the Holy of Holies, which was the holiest of all. And if you made a mistake in the Holy of Holies, what happened to you? You know, you're dead. You're dead immediately, because that place is to be holy. Now, where is the dwelling place of God today after the work of Jesus Christ? Here. But unfortunately, we walk around 
and act and pretend as if the dwelling place of God is not here, that this doesn't need to be a holy place, that we don't need to be mindful of every thought that we have and every action that we take and everything we do with our body and everything we think and everything we feel. All of this matters because God is right here, right now with you in your heart. Do you really think that any of your thoughts go unnoticed by God who lives in you? There is nothing hidden from him. He knows it all and it's to be clean. Clean. Perfectly clean. Perfectly holy. This is what God intends. So certainly taking your body then and doing something with it that it wasn't designed to do, this is profaning the temple of God. And does God stand for that? No, he does not. A very interesting thing happened when Jesus died on the cross. Do you remember what that significant event was in the temple? There was something that happened, okay? The, and this is out of Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 51, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and rocks were split. What is the significance of the fact that the temple and the curtain, which was very thick, by the way, uh, was torn in two. Why? Why is that recorded? Why did that actually happen? Of what significance is that? Well, what was the curtain dividing? The people from the presence of God. No longer is there a barrier between God and the people because we have a mediator, and that mediator is Jesus Christ himself. He has broken down the dividing wall No longer is there anything standing between you and your God except for one thing, your own sinfulness. And if you can deal with that sinfulness, you have access to God. Now, how do you deal with your sinfulness? There's only one way. There's only one way to deal with your sinfulness. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ who took your place on a cross as a substitute. And now, by having faith in him, That dividing wall of sin is broken down and now you have access to God. How access? Well, you might think, and we just need to make sure we're thinking about this rightly, when we come into this room, we are not entering into the presence of God. For the reason, this is not the house of God. This is not the house of God. I think he can do better than this. No building is the house of God. The dwelling place of God in its holiest place is called the sanctuary of God, where God lives and where it is holy. Sanctuary shares an idea with sanctification, doesn't it? Because that idea is about holiness. Where is the holy place of God? It's here, not here. So when do you enter into God's house? There's a better question. When do you ever leave God's house? You never leave God's house should you be a believer in the Spirit of God dwelling in you. He is there always. He is there right with you. Every second of every day with every breath that you breathe, you are in the presence of God. Does your life reflect that? That's the big question. Does your life reflect the reality that you are in the presence of God every single moment of every day? Or does something for some reason change when you go to church and you clean your act up, use the right words, make sure and be nice to people? That doesn't make sense, does it? God is with you always. Church is not something you go to. Church is something you are. Okay? All right, we better move on. That's all good. <clears throat> Just really quick, and, and we're going to get through the rest of this, because remember, what is CBA? It's a reiteration of ABC. So we already kind of understand it, so that'll be very quick, okay? But before we get to that second half, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. If you're taking notes, please write down that reference. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. What does it say? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain, through his flesh. The flesh of Jesus is now the curtain, the access to God. And since we have a great, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Oh, wait. So our conscience, the immaterial part of us, our heart, our mind, our affections, and also our bodies, because your body matters, washed clean with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay? So, what of all of this? Drop down a little bit to verse 26. Where'd we end? 25? Well, drop down one verse. How about that? If we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation, a judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified, outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But listen to this. Recall the former days when you were enlightened, when you first came to Christ and you endured hard struggle and sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you yourselves knew that you had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. It has great reward. For you have need of endurance that when you have done the will of God, you might receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is what the redeemed life looks like. It's a life of confidence before God. So let me just say, while we're going to wrap up these ideas here, but let me just say, I know, because I talk to many of you privately, and I have for years, I, people feel like, even random people find out I'm a pastor, and all of a sudden, it's like, they, it's almost like confession with a Catholic priest. It's just that things, weird walls break down, and people want to tell me things. But here's one of the things that I hear often, not only from people outside the church, but from people within the church, is that they believe that they're just too dirty for God. They're just too sinful for God. I'm not deserving. I'm not worthy. And so when you come to God, you, I don't even know if I can go to God. I don't know if I can even walk. I've told you about my uncle, right? He never walked into a church building. Why? Because he said, I believe God will strike me with a bolt of lightning if I walk into a church. And so he said, I'm never going to go into a church building, okay? That extreme taken at a different level. Do you approach God in confidence? Even in the midst of your mistakes and sinfulness. If you don't, you don't understand the fullness of what Christ has done for you. Don't you know that he has paid for all your sin? Don't you know that he has given you access and that you're not earning access to God? You don't earn access to God. You can't. Jesus gave you free access to God. And so now you can boldly come before him. Not boldly as in a proud way, but boldly because you have faith in what he has done for you in Christ Jesus. Come to him boldly, not based on who you are, not based on your goodness, but come boldly based on your profession of faith in Christ in his goodness. Okay, so reality number two, he says it in another way. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that you have from God. Let me say that in a different way. 
You are not your own. Don't you know that, believer? You are not your own. You don't own yourself. The Christian does not belong to himself. So now he's switching from temple language to master-servant language. And he's saying, you belong to another. You did not purchase yourself, but you were purchased by someone else. You don't belong to yourself. You are not free in that sense. If you were free, that leads to what we talked about last week with free grace. Free grace, remember, says, I can sin as much as I want and it doesn't matter because I've been forgiven. Is that the life that we live? Are you free to do whatever you want? You're free after all. No one can tell you what to do except that you don't belong to yourself and that someone can tell you what to do and does tell you what to do and that is your master and Lord, Jesus Christ himself. You do not belong to yourself, you belong to another. Romans 14, 7 and 8 says, None of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What implications does that have? Well, everything. Every conversation you have, every thought you have, everything you look at with your eyes, everything you touch with your hands. Everything your senses experience belongs to God. So just because you like doing something, just because it brings you pleasure, does that mean you have been given free license to do that thing? Because God just wants you happy after all. Is God more concerned with your happiness or his glory? And wouldn't it be great if those two things went together? God takes glory out of me eating junk food. So I'm, therefore, I'm going to eat junk food to the glory of God. But that's, that's incorrect. God has told us what gives him glory, hasn't he? I want to give glory to God with all my thoughts, with all my affections, with all my actions. And I don't get to make up what gives God glory. He has told us what gives him glory. Okay? So, reason number two then being, for you were bought with a price. Who did we belong to before? Before we belonged to God, who did we belong to? Did Jesus die to purchase us from Satan? No. The answer to that is no. A particular uh, branch of theology would say yes to that, but that's, that has to do with um, the theory of, of the atonement. Why did Jesus come to die? Did he come to die to buy us from Satan? Or did he come to die to pay a blood price to God. Who did Jesus pay? Satan? No. Jesus didn't pay Satan with his blood. Who did he pay? God. So you see the difference. Jesus' blood purchased us from the wrath of God. We were once enemies of God and now we are called friends of God because we've been purchased by God himself. No longer any wrath to pay. That makes sense? Acts 20, 28, 2 Peter 2, 1, they both speak to these realities. Acts 20, 28 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus bought us And I just want you to think things that you buy and that now you own and they belong to you and that thing is doing something other than what you bought it for. Are you happy with that thing? Now God, being God, purchased us for a particular reason. And we're to do what he has purchased us to do and to be who he has purchased us to be. There's no choice in the matter. You were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. But we like to think we're our own master. We like to think we're in charge of our own life. We like to think that we can do, taste, touch, feel, experience anything we want to, but that's just wrong. It's incorrect. And this is where we have conflict. 
James tells us this. Why do you fight and bite and devour one another? It's because your passions are at war within you. That's why. Because sinfulness creeps up in us, doesn't it? And it makes us desire things and want to do things that we shouldn't do. But we don't care. We brush that aside and you say, you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me that's wrong. And there's the misunderstanding. I I didn't tell you what's wrong. I told you what God said about it. That's a pretty big difference. Wouldn't you agree? But anyway, messengers, right? Just, just be prepared. We already talked about church discipline. Sometimes that goes well, sometimes it doesn't. But we pray that the Lord would give soft hearts in those matters, right? Yes. All right. So you were bought with a price. And then finally, our last imperative. He only gives two. The first one is flee. And the second one is what? Glorify. So, end of all of this, what should you do based on the reality that you are a temple of God and that you don't belong to yourself? What, what do you do with this? Well, you do two things. You flee from sexual immorality and you glorify God in your body. So that takes both sides. What are we running away from? Sexual immorality. And where are we running to? The glory of God. We're not just aimlessly running away from sin and sexual immorality. You're probably going to run right into something else that's bad. You need to run away from this to the glory of God. And what is glory? If we were to glorify God in our body, probably need to know what glory means. What does it mean to glorify? The word glory, and you might know this, carries with it the idea of both weight and brightness. Weight, heaviness, and brightness. So to give something its proper glory means to properly weigh a thing, right? You weigh God, you weigh the amount of honor that you're to give to him, and it weighs 10 pounds, right? That's the weight of God's glory, 10 pounds, for example. But you say, with my body, I'm not going to give God 10 pounds of weight. I'm going to give God a couple ounces, and that's probably good enough. So to glorify God with your body means to properly weigh out who God is and what he deserves and to give him full credit for all that he has given you and for all he is. So to glorify God with your body means to recognize that God designed you for a particular purpose and a reason and to then live out with your life the reality that God created you to live out. And when you do that, you are giving God glory. Does that make sense? To use your body for something other than what it was created for is to deny God of the glory that he should be receiving. We have weighed things improperly. Our balances are out of whack. That's not right. So you want to give God glory? You want to glorify him? You want to weigh him out properly and give him everything that he deserves? Glorify God not only with your mind. That's true. That's just not the focus of the text. Glorify God with your affections. That's true. That's just not the focus of the text. Glorify God with your body. I think this is a very missing element in the Christian life. Everything matters except my body. My body's mine. No, it's not. You are not your own. You belong to another. Let us be careful then to flee sexual immorality. Yes. What might this mean? Just we're going to, we're taking the Lord's Supper today and I'm going to move over to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. So if you turn there with me, um, and while you turn there, what are some practical realities to this? Yes, we are to give God glory with our body, and specifically the conversation is about sexual immorality, and so maybe let's just say, practically speaking, um, in the year 2023, is it easy or difficult to fall into sexual immorality in the year 2023? Huh? What do you think? Easy? Would you say it's very, very easy? So, if it's very, very easy, and it's almost like a sand pit, or something trying to suck us down, you know, like when giant ships sink, and you're in the water above it, it's going to pull you down in the water by the weight. It's like this is a massive thing that we're, we're sitting right here and we need to be very, very careful. We're going to get pulled down by its weight. 
we're going to get sucked into the sand. We're going to get burned by the fire, and the fire's huge. So what should we do about that? Should we be very, very careful because it's very, very easy to sin in this way? What types of things does this include? How about super, very easy access to pornography? What do you think about that one? So should you take steps to make sure that that's not a temptation for you in your life? Or should you just not flee from it necessarily? You just want to be careful not to step on it. Or should you flee from it? What do you think? I think you should flee. I think you should actually run the opposite direction of that thing. And if there's something that's pulling you in, that thing needs to be cut out and you need to make sure that that's not something that's present in your life. Unless you don't realize that you are not your own or unless you don't realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you didn't realize that or do you not know that? Shows we watch, any media we consume, it's everywhere. Also be careful with your kids, browsing around on YouTube, things like this. It's everywhere. Other social media outlets, be very careful. It's everywhere. Flee. Don't tiptoe around it. Flee from it. You want a good imagery to that? Think about Joseph. Run away. Did it cost him something? Yes, it certainly did. Did it have consequences? And he was wrongfully imprisoned? Yes. Would you rather be wrongfully imprisoned and glorify God or not glorify God and not be imprisoned? That's a question. You were created to give God glory, whatever it costs you. And it will cost you. Jesus, in fact, promised that it will cost you. There is a cost to discipleship. 1 Corinthians 11. Later on in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul will talk to them about their practices of taking the Lord's Supper when they gathered together. And when they gathered together, they were not taking the Lord's Supper properly. They were having a meal, but the rich people were bringing lots of food and lots of wine. The poor people didn't have anything to bring. And so they were humiliating people who didn't have anything. And Paul says, it's not even at that point the Lord's Supper you're taking because you're humiliating people. Elevating some people and pushing other people down. And that's not okay. It says, beginning in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, and he said, This cup in the new covenant is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so we might not be condemned along with the world. What is expected when we take the Lord's Supper together? What is expected is that this is an opportunity for us all to recognize our sinfulness and yet our forgiveness. If you don't recognize your sinfulness, what is it that you are celebrating that you have been forgiven of? So when we have texts like this and it, you know, cuts our heart and it reminds us of our sinfulness, what should we do with that? be weird and not make eye contact with anybody and not take the Lord's Supper and sneak out as soon as it's prayer time? That's one way you could handle it. That would be incorrect. Unless you don't know that you are a temple of the Spirit of God. Unless you don't realize what all God has done for you, that he has atoned for your sin. He has atoned for your sin. Why are you cowering in a corner? You are not an enemy of God. You are a friend of God. Now, imperfectly so, 
but you were a child of God. You were his friend. So you can confess your sin to him. In fact, you should. And guess what happens when you examine yourself properly, you judge yourself properly, and you call sin, sin in your life, and you say to God, this is sin, but I hate it, Lord. I hate it. Please forgive me of my sinfulness. Cleanse me. Wash me. Use the Spirit in my life to fight this sin and these passions inside of me. Give me help, Lord, and give me forgiveness. Let me walk in newness of life as I should. Let this meal that I'm taking today be properly representative of my whole life. Jesus Christ died, his blood was shed. I now have the Spirit of God in me, God himself living in me. Does my life look like that? Lord, forgive me where it doesn't look like that. And thank you for taking an imperfect sinner who only wanted to rebel against you and forgiving me. Forgiving me freely by all that you have done for me in Jesus Christ. Free forgiveness is what's offered to you. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to do that today. Our days are all numbered, but you don't know how many you have left. Place your faith in Jesus confidently knowing he has done everything you could not and he has completely satisfied the wrath of God. And you can have true forgiveness by placing your faith in who he is and what he's done. That is absolutely true. It's the most important thing you could ever do with your whole life, regardless of what our culture tells you. This is what's important. For the believer, do you know the most important thing you need to do is to remember that reality and die to yourself daily. Your life is not just free for you to live and do whatever you want. And now, now that you have Jesus, go get everything else the world has to offer. Wrong. You are not your own. You belong to another. You were purchased. So glorify God with your life, with your body, with your mind, with your strength, with everything that you have. Give God the glory with everything. This is why you exist. Not for us to pursue what we want, but to give God glory with everything. And yes, it's going to cost you. So when we come and we take the Lord's Supper, we recognize our sinfulness, but as we do, we look backward at what God did in Jesus Christ to give us forgiveness. Second, we look forward at what God will do. We proclaim his death until he comes. You know he's coming back. All things will be perfect. Perfect. I was telling someone the other day, and this is just a sweet reality to think about. Do you know that in heaven, in eternity, not one single ounce of any of your affections will be lacking? Every single thing your heart desires, which you'll have transformed desires, by the way, your heart will be absolutely full, daily, continually. No more pains, no more sorrows. Your heart will be full, and isn't that what you've always wanted since you can remember? You have a longing in you, and that longing will be fulfilled in Christ in eternity. So we look forward to that, don't we? We look forward to what God will do, but then not only that, please, if you're not doing this, we've missed it we have to also look in our own hearts. We must look in our own hearts and ask God for forgiveness. So I'm going to pray for us and uh, Katie's going to come play a song for us. And as she does, I want you to, I would like for you to uh, pray, um, examine yourself, give God glory and praise, and uh, then come and take the Lord's Supper. You can come and take a cup back to your seat. If you're not able to get up here, you can ask someone to get the cup for you. Take it back to your seat. That's fine. Um, if you need someone to bring you a cup, just let one of us know. We can, we can just let us know. We'll bring it to you because this is important for us to partake in together. Okay? So I'm going to pray and then you, uh, you pray and then whenever it's right for you, come and take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time and <clears throat> for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the great reminder today and the truth that you are right here present with us now and with every breath we take. And it's such a privilege 
but it's a weight. It's a weight that it's hard to comprehend that we walk around with. We walk around with the very presence of God in us and it's hard sometimes to comprehend that reality and it's certainly difficult because our passions are at war within us, fighting this reality. But I pray for our church, Lord, I pray for all of us individually that we would be able to, by your spirit and according to your word, judge ourselves truly, that we would confess our sin to you and we thank you already. We don't have to, in a sense, wonder if forgiveness will be given to us because you have promised forgiveness in faith in Jesus Christ. You have promised it and you are faithful to your promises. Thank you for the forgiveness that you have given us in Jesus Christ. I pray that as we eat and as we drink, we remember what you have done for us in Jesus Christ and it further presses on to our hearts and minds who we are to now be walking around in this world with the very presence of God in us. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.